The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. In between visits, I saw my father all around New York. I saw him sitting in a movie theater, the exact curve of his neck to jaw to cheekbone. I saw him as I ran along the Hudson River in winter, sitting on a bench looking at the dock boats, and on my subway ride to work, walking away on the platform through the crowd. Thin men, olive-skinned, fine-fingered, slim-wristed, double-bearded, who, at certain angles, looked just like him. Each time I had to get closer to check, my heart in my throat, even though I knew it could not possibly be him, because he was sick in bed in California. Before this, during years in which we hardly spoke, I'd seen his picture everywhere. Seeing the pictures gave me a strange thing. The feeling was familiar to catching a glimpse of myself in a mirror across a room and thinking it was someone else and then realizing it was my own face. There he was, peering up from magazines and newspapers and screens in whatever city I was in. That is my father, and no one knows it, but it's true. That's Lisa Brennan-Jobs, reading from her first memoir, Small Fry. Lisa's story is both about having a secret and being a secret. What's your life like when your father, the father who initially did not believe you were his, the father who only reluctantly claimed you after he was forced to take a paternity test, the father who kept you at arm's length all your life, is one of the most famous, powerful, and wealthiest men in the world. Here's just a bit more from Lisa before we dive into our conversation. I have a secret, I said to my new friends at school. I whispered it so they would see I was reluctant to mention it. The key, I felt, was to underplay. My father is Steve Jobs. 
Who's that? One asked. He's famous, I said. He invented the personal computer. He lives in a mansion and drives a Porsche convertible. He buys a new one every time it gets a scratch. The story had a film of unreality to it, as I said it, even to my own ears. I hadn't hung out with him that much, only a few skates and visits. I didn't have the clothes or the bike someone with a father like this would have. My last name was different from his. He even named a computer after me, I said to them. What computer? A girl named Elizabeth asked. The Lisa, I said. A computer called the Lisa, she said. I never heard of it. It was ahead of its time. I used my mother's phrase, although I wasn't sure why it was ahead. He invented the personal computer later, but you can't tell anyone because if someone finds out, I could get kidnapped. I brought it up when I felt I needed to, waiting as long as I could and then letting it burst forth. I don't remember feeling at a disadvantage with my friends who had fathers, only that there was at my fingertips another magical identity, an extra thing that started to itch and tingle when I felt small. And it was like a pressure building inside me. And then I had to find a way to say it. She had to find a way to say it. Isn't that what this show is all about? So many of us are trying to find a way to say it, whatever it is, this thing that wasn't allowed to be spoken. I'm Danny Shapiro. And this is Family Secrets, the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. So I miss it a lot, actually. The air in California, in Northern California, smells of eucalyptus. They're towering, and they're silvery, and they have these five thin half-moon leaves that dangle down and shiver in the wind and they have these beautiful kind of button shaped seeds that plonk on the ceilings and fall on the roads and they're kind of silvery too and perfumed my mother was saying that they're not native to the area and that their root systems are really shallow so they can fall over she said this when I was younger and I I held on to this idea and I remember when we would drive to the beach which was up this curvy road all the way over the hills and then down to the Pacific Ocean, there was a line of of eucalyptus trees. And and every time we would have to go through that long, tree-lined road, I would hold my breath with terror that that these trees would fall down on us. And then many years later, she said, oh, no, sweetheart, no trees fall very slowly. But anyway, the air smelled of eucalyptus and danger. The earliest home I think I remember was this place, it was sort of the back house of a house in Menlo Park. And you know I remember being in the shower with my mother and she was, the hot water and the cold water were coming on. We were alternating them for some reason and she was yelling like closed pores, open pores, and I was yelling it with her. And I think there was a curtain. And then we would go outside of that house. There was, you know, the house was small, but there was quite a garden because the main house was surrounded by land. This house was a kind of house on stilts on a hill that was really falling apart a little bit. The one with the trellis roses, and there was ivy on one side where I would go and play beside a big oak tree on my own, or with the boy who lived there with his mother also. We were renting a room. And now that house has been all fixed up. It looks really nice. It doesn't look anymore like it's 
gonna fall down the hill or like the wood is old. It looks like a shiny polished version of its, of its old self. And then we lived in a bunch of houses. I think I moved 13 times before I was seven or by the time I was seven. What was it like to move 13 times in the first seven years of your life? I mean, both what was it like then and like, how do you think about that now? It's hard to know what it was like then. I remember my mother being very sad. I think maybe she was probably depressed and probably just completely overwhelmed with our moneyless circumstances and how she would kind of sit in one of these rooms in the dark and I would feel embarrassed. So then this one house that we're moving into, it was our own house. We were the ones who had our name on the lease. And I remember the distinction. Oh my God, we're moving into a place that's just ours. And I also remember noticing that we really didn't have any furniture. So I had these moments of feeling a distance from my own circumstances and observing them. Maybe because I've been to other people's houses. We lived at one place over the summer that was full of furniture. We sublet it from someone who was away. And they had a television. And I remember watching Sesame Street and they had so much furniture that right now, the way I imagined it, it was a kind of a hoarder's paradise. But in fact, it might have just been a very well normally furnished house. You know, it wasn't necessarily something I was looking at anthropologically because it was my life and I was so young I didn't really know any different and yet there were points when I remember thinking oh that's different than what might be normal and I think that children will take these moments that are mysterious and sort of box them up for later and I think that because I think during the process of writing the memoir it was it was an unboxing in other words the stories that I would remember were the ones that where things happened that did not make sense to me at the time, and that is why I had wrapped them up and saved them for all that time. One of these boxed-up moments happens in a car after Lisa and her mom have taken a road trip to Harbin Hot Springs, and everything that can possibly go wrong does. Her mother gets lost. The car breaks down. They're hungry, tired, and completely without resources. And her mother just loses it completely loses it and essentially has a nervous collapse right there in the car in front of her four-year-old daughter in what must have been a frightening combination of terror and rage. There's this moment where you write, at the height of her hopelessness and noise, I'd felt a calm presence near us, even though I knew we were alone in the watery hell, the car jerking, some benevolent presence that cared for us but could not interfere, maybe sitting in the back seat. Can you say more about that benevolent presence and whether that's something that kind of accompanied you at other times? You were very young when you had that thought. Right. I think I was four, and I talked to my mother about that later after I'd written it. I was mentioning this moment you talked about in the car, driving back from this little sort of break we took, driving back to our home. Oh, my God. You know, we don't have money. We don't have support. There's a sense of shame in society for her role and she feels this very acutely she is a unmarried woman with a with an illegitimate child I mean it's not that she would ever have thought of me that way but Reagan is talking about welfare mothers and single mothers and my father is saying that she essentially slept with lots of people and she she had and it wasn't his kid and you know just shame upon shame and she had had her own tough things in her childhood and so she's She's screaming kind of at the universe, but I'm here. And she said later, when I asked her about it, that she, she 
she'd had other moments like that before that time. But that at that moment, she realized, oh, Lisa's going to remember this later. In other words, I was past the veil where memories disappear. And, oh, God, I remember being terrified. And I remember if I didn't keep a hold of myself, I might not realize how weird certain things were. And I wanted certain things to be weird because I didn't want them to be my life. And that's another kind of disassociation, is other presence in the car. I guess the psychological model has named this phenomenon, which is in a moment of extreme stress, we bisect and become two. Our calmness finds another ground or something like that. Is dissociation as defense? Right. I felt when I was writing the book, like, oh my God, that's the purpose of this book in a certain way. I get to go back and keep myself company. I get to go back as a steady hand, as someone who, to some degree, made it out fine to all the difficult times of my childhood when I didn't know if we would make it out fine. And I can't influence anything, but I get to kind of sit in the back seat and be this presence. Describe your mother to me. My mother is luminous. I think if she's not creative, if she's not expressing herself artistically, even in one day, she feels disconnected from herself and becomes depressed. She decided when I was born that she was going to become, she was going to be a mother and an artist, that she was going to do them both. And she pursued that fairly intensely. She is very beautiful, I think. She's really blunt. She's really honest. She will tell the truth without thinking first of the consequences because the truth is the only important thing to her. Was that also true for you when you were a child? There was a kind of like, she wasn't going to soften it so much for a child. She was going to, and I don't mean it's in a kind of crying in the car way, like that was an extraordinary circumstance, but I mean... She would get very mad at me, for example, if I talked about good guys and bad guys, which I see now children doing all the time and must have always been a trope of childhood. But if I would talk about good guys, she would get furious. This was useful to Lisa later, this talk of good guys and bad guys. Her mom also talked about not looking at things in black and white, that there were many shades, many colors, also useful later. She was young. She was so young. She was younger than everyone else's mother. She was more beautiful. She was more fun, I think, in certain ways. Like, we would go and get coffee. We would take walks. We would go on hikes. And how old was she when she had you? She was 23. She has a quality where she will sometimes bite the hand that feeds her. This feels like part of this honesty. But I'm not sure if it always is. And that quality was frustrating to me when I was a kid. I would have rather lied to make things comfortable for us. And that was not the way she operated. Tell me your first memory of hearing about your father. So at some point, I guess we came back from Tahoe when I was four. And apparently he picked us up in his Porsche. I sat on my mother's lap. Those were the days, right? In the front seat. <laughs> and we drove to his, he just bought this mansion and Woodside, and he bought it for the land. It has these big, old, beautiful, huge oak trees. And he said the house was shit. And it had an elevator, and I discovered it, or I felt I discovered it. It had an organ room. 
from going up and down the elevator and I'm playing the organ. I mean, an organ is a church organ, so there's like rooms full of pipes. At some point he gave me an apricot from the orchard and it was just like the best thing I'd ever had. And then I think we didn't really start to get to know each other again when I was seven or eight and I remember going back to that mansion with him alone where I knew there was an elevator and there was a church organ. And I knew that he didn't love that I was fascinated, bordering on obsessed with those things. There was a lot of silence. I think in retrospect, he was very awkward. And I think extraordinary in front of groups and then sometimes maybe much quieter one-on-one. Also, he was getting to know his daughter for the first time, which I can only imagine for somebody who maybe wasn't even particularly good with kids, who maybe felt ashamed he hadn't been there earlier. And also, we don't realize as kids that kids can be a little scary when you're an adult, when you don't know how to talk with them and they don't respond the way adults do to everything. Someone told me that the charms that worked on everyone else didn't necessarily work on me, and so then what did he have? I've never seen someone dressed so well. I remember that. And I wouldn't have been able to put it in those words as a kid. And it wasn't like he wore anything particularly fancy. But at that point, he was, you know, had hundreds of millions of dollars. So his sweaters, they weren't particularly fancy or anything, but they were like a league different than anything I'd seen. It's like he'd be wearing ripped up jeans, but then there'd be something about his shoes. You know, with our clothes, we'd wear them a bunch, wash them a bunch, and they'd get worn the colors would fade and maybe they'd be a little tattered and they'd they'd be a little wrinkly from folding and I think probably with his they were in the drawer and maybe worn only a few times and they were crisp but I remember that some puzzlement about the way that he looked and the smells the smells of new clothes And, and I'm finding it comforting because it was almost like he was an emissary from another world a world that smelled different maybe that smelled European right these clothes were probably perfumed and packaged and sent over. He drove fast, not particularly well, but fast. His car was rumbly. All of the machines around him made noises that I that were new to me. Again, they were probably European. <laughs> there was a feeling of, of magic when he was around, because it was special. He would come by, oh, your dad's coming by, you know. Um, maybe we'd go for a skate, and... He sort of walked in this way where he seemed to fall forward and then bounce up and fall forward. And I remember that, and his hair was so dark. And even now, just describing it, just this feeling of love welling up in me right now, even just like, oh, this one, this is the one that I got, and how wonderful he is. Because he was had a certain sweetness to him, and... I want to say charm, but I don't think that does it justice because it went all the way to the core. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. 
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lisa inhabits a world of contrasts that she feels, intuits, rather than comprehends. This is the way it is in childhood, even in our teenage years. We don't yet have the tools we'll develop later to be able to think through, analyze, understand. So we're left with what we sense and feel in our bodies. And what Lisa felt was the difference between the way her mother and her father moved through the world. Her mother's life was pinched and closed, anxious, pressed, defined by limitation. And her father, though he didn't live or act like a typical rich person, 
He wore jeans and t-shirts, lived in a crumbly mansion. He moved through the world with a sense of possibility and openness. How old were you when he suggested that you come live with him? My mom and I were having horrible fights. Uh, I think that she kind of had a crisis. I mean, understandably, I think, in the sense that she had been raising me alone with, for a large part, very, very limited support. And then I started kind of taking off in a certain way. I was in a great school. I was doing really well. All I wanted to do was study. And she was kind of the the support staff. She was maid. And this probably cast her back to having always been the maid. And her life was sputtering. She was breaking up with her boyfriend of many years. And I think just everything was really hard for her at that moment. And so we were getting in horrible fights. And also I was like a kind of, you know, a little bit shitty in the sense that I didn't want to do the dishes. I wanted to do my homework. And I have, of course, it's fair to help your parent with the dishes. I think it was also like she would kind of make it as miserable as it could be because she was enraged. And that's why I didn't want to do the dishes with her. (laughs) I didn't want to participate in in this anymore. And she was getting worse and I felt I was getting better. And, And then also to my father who had turned his back on me when I was little and then had increasingly become a part of my life, I was now someone he could be proud of, right? I was doing really well in school. I was, I know that sounds cynical, but I think in some ways it was like I'd gotten all shined up to the point where he'd own me. (laughs) I don't know. That's terrible. But he probably didn't necessarily want to take me in. He's just about to have a baby. He has a new, very new wife. Um, He says he's moved to Palo Alto a few blocks away. Later I asked him why, and he said to be close to me. He offered to have me move in with him, but it wasn't an offer that was necessarily full of joy. It was almost a full of necessity. Was it his rules, though, that um, that you not see your mother for six months if you moved in with him? Or where did that come from? Was it protective of you because things were so rough with your mother? Or was it controlling or, or something else? He's just someone who doesn't know what he's necessarily doing in the emotional sphere is trying to help me in some ways is trying to save me from what has become a terrible environment with my mother and doesn't know how to love very easily when he doesn't have any control. And I think if I move over to his house two blocks away from my mother and then I'm just still going over to my mother's house all the time and perhaps she's yelling at me, who knows what he's thinking. I mean, if I put it terribly towards him, if I'm seeing my mother all the time, he has no way of making sure I'm okay. And so that's, that's what he invented. And then the rules around that, I think, were six months. I remember this kind of vaguely. It was a horrible time, as you could imagine. I remember a certain relief, like, oh, phew, I get to not see my mother, but I'm not at fault for it. You know, so, that it, so in the beginning, it was just relief. Like, I get to move away, and it's my father's fault that I don't have to see my mother. You know, because I'm so angry with her. I'm so tired of the fight. And so I'm this sort of moratorium on contact is a relief for me. I mean, there would have been a million ways to do it better. Like, we, we all probably should have gone to see a therapist. But I don't think my father really believed in seeing a therapist because, you know, obviously people who don't believe in therapists, usually there's something lurking under there, right? But, yeah, that was a real botched job, I think, telling a kid they can't see their mother for six months. We needed some real help, not some superficial kind of band-aid, regulated, controlling help. We needed real help. 
And I think he was part of the problem of why we had ended up there, why my mother was in such trouble. And he took on some of solving that problem. He was paying for my school. He was paying for my therapist. Going to a great school, I had a great therapist. But he didn't really take it on. And I both understand it and am sad about it. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's a part of what you write about once you're there, you know, once you're living in that home with he and his new wife, and then your baby brother is born, and you describe really powerfully sort of the anxiety that sets in, and one of those ways is your hands, and that you keep on, like, breaking glasses. Like, you literally can't get a grip. I think it's like some mix of adolescence and destabilization. I just couldn't, I seemed to want to be pleasing. I was, I was such a pleaser, am such a pleaser, wanted to fit in, wanted to be loved, wanted to be necessary, needed, enjoyed. And yet I keep on breaking glasses all over the kitchen floor, like every day, every day at dinner. And I, I sit down at dinner thinking, okay, Lisa, not a glass this time, not a glass this time, no, but, and I'm so careful, and I'm so careful, and I make it through the meal, and I'm almost through the meal, and then, boom, something, my elbow just out when I'm reaching for my last bite, or whatever it is, and there, another broken glass shatters on the floor. Oh, Lisa. And I must have felt it was such a difficulty, such a trial and an annoyance to have this needy teenager in their midst who's constantly breaking glasses on the on the floor where their child is stepping. <laughs> it's like every night just promising myself I wasn't going to do the worst thing and then just despite all of my efforts. And this is after I had been so beloved in my schools and, and I've, I've just switched schools and I don't know anybody but I've been so beloved in my schools. I've always had friends and suddenly I can't make friends and I can't I can't seem to be beloved and and needed, and I keep on pushing myself away from the very thing I think I want, which is somehow to just be included, to be necessary, to be family. So it isn't a particularly good time in the Jobs family. There's a new baby, an unhappy, awkward, accident-prone teenager. The marriage is new and tense, and Lisa's father's new company isn't going well. Lisa's new stepmother is, constitutionally, not a warm person, even under the best of circumstances, which these are not. Lisa's feeling the tension in the home and absorbing it, in a way, becoming the physical embodiment of it. She's sort of the black sheep, the lightning rod. There's something going on with everybody, but it keeps getting expressed through her. So they go see a therapist, Lisa, her stepmother, and her father, And in response to Lisa's loneliness and pain, her stepmother says, we're just cold people. With honest, like, girlfriend, you're barking up the wrong tree. We cannot give you this thing you want. You're going to have to find it other ways. Not that she said it that way, even. Maybe that's okay. We are all not omni-capacity people. And maybe the worst thing in life is to lie about it. Maybe we have to be straightforward about our limitations. So at the same time as I find it a shocking admission and a shocking sentence to say to someone in high school or something, I also find it refreshing and interesting and honest. And my father actually isn't or wasn't a cold person. 
get kind of added up to that in a certain way because you couldn't depend on the warmth. It was so intermittent and unpredictable. He was passionate. He was warm, and he was cold when he was enraged. You know, so there was a kind of cold rage, <laughs> like like he, when he was really enraged and hurt, he'd completely ignore me. But he wasn't cold. Something I found interesting and heartbreaking in Lisa's story, and so illuminating of her internal condition, is that she pilfered things, small inconsequential things, from her father's home. Years later, when he was dying and she'd come to visit, she'd take tiny things of no material value, as if these things were going to bring her father close and complete her life. She'd take them on the plane home, a chipped bowl, an old pillowcase, a tube of lip gloss as if these things would fill up all the holes and cracks of whatever was missing. She had done a version of this while in high school as well. This time, after she discovers an envelope full of $100 bills, she peels one off, then later another, and another. She buys herself a coat. She buys gifts for her family. It isn't about the money. It's about the feelings she can't touch or express. The $100 bill, I think that was a way to access my own remorse somehow because that was the result of it is I walked around feeling it was almost like after I broke a glass it was I walked around feeling ashamed and full of remorse and I wonder if I hadn't felt somehow stolen from or ripped off by my father in some deep way and twisted it against myself And if I wasn't trying to access those feelings of being so bad that I was worth leaving, of being so, such a awful human being that I would have merited being abandoned. Because my feeling, I mean, you know, it's like this is a person who's been in too much therapy, but I'm just thinking, what is the result of stealing those hundreds? The result was I walked around always feeling every time my father would say, Lise, I would think, oh, he's got me. It's over. I'm going to be out. He's going to be, he's going to know how bad I am. I'm going to be left. And so I wonder if in a certain way, it bound me to him. It bound me to our story, which did not yet feel resolved, that he had left me and why I had no answer. Was it because I was an ugly baby? Was it because I wasn't lovable? Was it because there was something horribly wrong with my mother, who I'm related to? All of these reasons I could come up with because I didn't know the reason, and it hadn't been resolved, and I'm living with him, but it's still not resolved. So I think that's what it was about. I think it was about keeping myself feeling badly because I still, at my core, had not reached any resolution about our history together. Through these years, Lisa excels academically. This, a great college, is going to be her ticket out, and maybe also the shiny, sparkling achievement that will solve all these unsolvable problems. She has a dream of going to Harvard, a school which is not out of reach for her, no matter who her father is. And during her interview there, some survival instinct kicks in. And she lets the interviewer know that her father is the head of a little company called Apple. The tenor of the interview changes. The interviewer excuses herself for a moment, probably to go down the hall to the development office. And when she returns, the level of interest has risen just a bit. I really thought I was going to go to my grave with that story. 
because if you read that, you'll know I'm, I'm probably not, you know, maybe I'm not smart enough. I, I, you'll know how much I was willing to kind of elbow my way into something to get something, you know, you'll know opportunistic and, and selfish and sniveling, whatever, you'll know all that from reading. And I thought like, Oh God, I don't want people to read that. So it's funny, right? I wrote it and you know, it wasn't so bad. People said, Oh, good scene. And I thought, Oh, when I got the stories in there that needed to be in there, somehow the shame floated off of the stories for me. So that I didn't really worry about how I looked anymore because I felt so much better. I love that. Thank you for that. Because that I, I mean, that's sort of something that I talk about all the time and, and think about it on, on the podcast is the way that actually voicing shame, whether you're writing a memoir about it or speaking about it, it actually has this extraordinary effect of ultimately having that shame float away. Right. It wasn't until I started to open up the shameful things that I appeared. I became embodied. So shame was what embodied So let me ask you one last question. When your father is dying, he says to you again and again and again, he says to you, I owe you one. I owe you one. I'm just wondering what you think he meant by that and how you sort of took that with you, that sense that he was, in some way, at the end of all this, he was apologizing to you. It was like what I had wanted the whole time. I think it meant, like, at least the way that I interpret it, that was like, you and I see the same truth. What is missing for you, I see, I know. I did it. It is not nothing. I had felt this feeling of being kind of ripped off, meaning I didn't get to know my father when I was younger, and he wasn't there for me. He wasn't protecting me as well as he could. So I think it was an acknowledgement of a common truth, which has been part of the problem. Gosh, it's amazing how powerful it is to just say that your perspective of something is similar to another person. I didn't need him to make up for it. I didn't need him to apologize forever. But just the idea of, like, I owe you and I know it was so wonderful. It was such a balm. It felt like a balm on a burn. Like, oh, if we see things the same way, then I'm not crazy for all of my feelings. And I have felt like some part of him would have been very proud of me, but some part of him would have been very pissed at me writing this book and and somehow taking some part of the narrative for me. I wrote the book about myself, but he is pulled up in that net. And so I have told myself, you owe me one. This is the one. You can owe me this. <laughs> I get to write a book about myself, and you can consider some or all of your debts absolved. I want to thank my guest, Lisa Brennan-Jobs, for sharing her story on our show. For more on Lisa's memoir, Small Fry, visit lisabrennanjobs.net. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer. Julie Douglas and Beth Ann Macaluso are the executive producers. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer, Facebook at Family Secrets Pod, 
and Twitter at FamSecretsPod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.